Chapter Two of Hunting Tower by John Buchan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evans. Chapter Two of Mr. John Heritage and the Difference in Points of View. Dixon McCum was never to forget the first stage in that pilgrimage. A little after midday, he descended from a grimy third-class carriage at a little station whose name I have forgotten. In the village nearby. He purchased some new-baked buns and ginger biscuits, to which he was partial, and, followed by the shouts of urchins who admired his pack, "'Look at the old man gone to the school!' he emerged into open country. The late April noon gleamed like a frosty morning, but the air, though tonic, was kind. The road ran over sweeps of moorland where curlews wailed, and into lowland pastures dotted with very white, very vocal lambs. The young grass had the warm fragrance of new milk. As he went he munched his buns, for he had resolved to have no plethoric midday meal, and presently he found the burnside nook of his fancy, and halted to smoke. On a patch of turf close to a grey stone bridge he had out his Walton, and read the chapter on The Chavender, or Chub. The collocation of words delighted him and inspired him to verse. Lavender, or Lub, Pavender, or Pub, Gravender or grub. But the monosyllables proved too vulgar for poetry. Regretfully, he desisted. The rest of the road was as idyllic as the start. He would tramp steadily for a mile or so, and then saunter, leaning over bridges to watch the trout in the pools, admiring from a dry stone dyke the unsteady gambols of newborn lambs, kicking up dust from strips of moorburn on the heather. Once, by a firwood, he was privileged to surprise three lunatic hares waltzing. His cheeks glowed with the sun. He moved in an atmosphere of pastoral, serene, and contented. When the shadows began to lengthen, he arrived at the village of Clonkai, where he proposed to lie. The inn looked dirty, but he found a decent widow, above whose door ran the legend in homemade lettering, Mrs. Brocky, tea and coffee, and who was willing to give him quarters. There he supped handsomely of ham and eggs, and dipped into a work called Covenanting Worthies, which garnished a table decorated with seashells. At half-past nine precisely, he retired to bed and unhesitating sleep. Next morning he awoke to a changed world. The sky was grey and so low that his outlook was bounded by a cabbage garden, while a surly wind prophesied rain. It was chilly, too, and he had his breakfast beside the kitchen fire. Mrs. Brocky could not spare a capital letter for her surname on the signboard, but she exalted it in her talk. He heard of a multitude of Brockies, ascendant, descendant, and collateral, who seemed to be in a fair way to inherit the earth. Dixon listened sympathetically, and lingered by the fire. He felt stiff from yesterday's exercise, and the edge was off his spirit. The start was not quite what he had pictured. His pack seemed heavier, his boots tighter, and his pipe drew badly. The first miles were all uphill, with a wind tingling his ears, and no colours in the landscape but brown and grey. Suddenly he awoke to the fact that he was dismal, and thrust the nation behind him. He expanded his chest and drew in long draughts of air. He told himself that this sharp weather was better than sunshine. He remembered that all travellers in romances battled with mist and rain. Presently his body recovered comfort and vigour, 
and his mind worked itself into cheerfulness. He overtook a party of tramps, and fell into talk with them. He had always had a fancy for the class, though he had never known anything near it than city beggars. He pictured them as philosophic vagabonds, full of quaint turns of speech, unconscious Barovians. With these samples his disillusionment was speedy. The party was made up of a ferret-faced man with a red nose, a draggle-tailed woman, and a child in a crazy perambulator. Their conversation was one-sided, for it immediately resolved itself into a whining chronicle of misfortunes and petitions for relief. It cost him half a crown to be rid of them. The road was alive with tramps that day. The next one did the accosting. Hailing Mr. McGarner's governor, he asked to be told the way to Manchester. The objective seemed so enterprising that Dixon was impelled to ask questions, and heard, in what appeared to be in the accents of the colonies, the tale of a career of unvarying calamity. There was nothing merry or philosophic about this adventurer. Nay, there was something menacing. He eyed his companion's waterproof covetously, and declared that he had had one like it which had been stolen from him the day before. Had the place been lonely, he might have contemplated highway robbery, but they were at the entrance to a village, and the sight of a public house awoke his thirst. Dixon parted with him at the cost of sixpence for a drink. He had no more company that morning except an aged stonebreaker, whom he convoyed for half a mile. The stonebreaker also was soured with the world. He walked with a limp, which he said was due to an accident years before, when he'd been run into by out of those damned velocipedes. The word revived in Dixon memories of his youth, and he was prepared to be friendly. But the ancient would have none of it. He inquired morosely who what he was after, and on being told remarked that he might have learned more sense. It's a daft like thing for an old man like you to be travelling the roads. He maun be ill off for a job. Questioned as to himself, he became, as the newspapers say, reticent and, having reached his bing of stones, turned rudely to his duties. "'Away home with ye,' were his parting words. "'It's idle scoundrels like you that makes work for honest folk like me.' The morning was not a success, but the strong air had given Dixon such an appetite that he resolved to break his rule, and, on reaching the little town of Kilchrist, he sought luncheon at the chief hotel. There he found that which revived his spirits. A solitary bagman shared the meal, which revealed the fact that he was in the grocery line. There followed a well-informed and most technical conversation. He was drawn to speak of the United Supply Stores Limited, of their prospects, and of their predecessor, Mr. McCunn, whom he knew well by repute, but had never met. "'Yon's the clever one,' he observed. "'I've always said there's no longer head in the city of Glasgow than McCunn. An old-fashioned firm, but it is I managed to keep up with the times.' He's just retired, they tell me, and in my opinion it's a big loss to the provisioning trade. Dixon's heart glowed within him. Here was romance, to be praised incognito, to enter a casual inn and find that fame had preceded him. He warmed to the bagman, insisted on giving him a liqueur and a cigar, and finally revealed himself. "'I'm Dixon McCunn,' he said, taking a bit to holiday. "'Is there anything I can do for you when I get back? Just let me know.' With mutual esteem they parted. He had need of all his good spirits, for he emerged into an unrelenting drizzle. The environs of Kilchrist are at the best unlovely, 
and in the wet they were as melancholy as a graveyard. But the encounter with the bagman had worked wonders with Dixon, and he strode lustily into the weather, his waterproof collar buttoned round his chin. The road climbed to a bare moor, where lagoons had formed in the ruts, and the mist showed on each side only a yard or two of soaking heather. Soon he was wet. Presently every part of him, boots, body, and pack, was one vast sponge. The waterproof was not waterproof, and the rain penetrated to his most intimate garments. Little he cared. He felt lighter, younger, than on the idyllic previous day. He enjoyed the buffets of the storm, and one wet mile succeeded another to the accompaniment of Dixon's shouts and laughter. There was no one abroad that afternoon, so he could talk aloud to himself and repeat his favourite poems. About five in the evening there presented himself at the Black Bull Inn at Kirkmichael, a soaked, disreputable, but most cheerful traveller. Now the Black Bull at Kirkmichael is one of the few very good inns left in the world. It is an old place, and an hospitable, for it has been for generations a haunt of anglers, who above all other men understand comfort. There are always bright fires there, and hot water, and old soft leather armchairs, and an aroma of good food and good tobacco, and giant trout in glass cases, and pictures of Captain Barclay of Yorey walking to London, and Mr. Ramsay of Barnton winning a horse-race, and the three-volume edition of the Waverley novels with many volumes missing, and indeed all those things which an inn should have. Also there used to be, there may still be, sound vintage claret in the cellars. The Black Bull expects its guests to arrive in every stage of dishevelment, and Dixon was received by a cordial landlord who offered dry garments as a matter of course. The pack proved to have resisted the elements, and a suit of clothes and slippers were provided by the house. Dixon, after a glass of toddy, wallowed in a hot bath which washed all the stiffness out of him. He had a fire in his bedroom, beside which he wrote the opening passages of that diary he had vowed to keep, descanting lyrically upon the joys of ill weather. At seven o'clock, warm and satisfied in soul, and with his body clad in raiment several sizes too large for it, he descended to dinner. At one end of the long table in the dining-room sat a group of anglers. They looked jovial fellows, and Dixon would fain have joined them. But, having been fishing all day in the lock of the threshes, they were talking their own talk, and he feared that his admiration for Isaac Walton did not qualify him to butt into the erudite discussions of fishermen. The landlord seemed to think likewise, for he drew back a chair for him at the other end, where sat a young man absorbed in a book. Dixon gave him good evening, and got an abstracted reply. The young man supped the black bull's excellent broth with one hand, and with the other turned the pages of his volume. A glance convinced Dixon that the work was French, a literature which did not interest him. He knew little of the tongue, and suspected it of impropriety. Another guest entered and took the chair opposite the bookish young man. He was also young, not more than thirty-three, and, to Dixon's eye, was the kind of person he would have liked to resemble. He was tall and free from any superfluous flesh. His face was lean, fine-drawn, and deeply sunburnt, so that the hair above showed oddly pale. The hands were brown and beautifully shaped but the forearm revealed by the loose cuffs of his shirt was as brawny as a blacksmith's. 
he had rather pale blue eyes, which seemed to have looked much at the sun, and a small moustache of the colour of ripe hay. His voice was low and pleasant, and he pronounced his words precisely, like a foreigner. He was very ready to talk, but in defiance of Dr. Johnson's warning, his talk was all questions. He wanted to know everything about the neighbourhood, who lived in what houses, what were the distances between the towns, what harbours would admit what class of vessel. Smiling agreeably, he put Dixon through a catechism to which he knew none of the answers. The landlord was called in and proved more helpful. But on one matter he was fairly at a loss. The catechist asked about a house called Darkwater, and was met with a shake of the head. "'I know no sick-like name in this countryside, sir,' and the catechist looked disappointed. The literary young man said nothing but et trout abstractedly, one eye on his book. The fish had been caught by the anglers in the lock of the threshes, and phrases describing their capture floated from the other end of the table. The young man had a second helping, and then refused the excellent hill mutton that followed, contenting himself with cheese. Not so Dixon and the catechist. They ate everything that was set before them, topping up with a glass of port. Then the latter, who had talked illuminatingly about Spain, rose, bowed, and left the table, leaving Dixon, who liked to linger over his meals, to the society of the ichthyophagus student. He nodded towards the book. "'Interesting?' he asked. The young man shook his head and displayed the name on the cover. "'Anatole France. I used to be crazy about him, but now he seems rather a back number.' Then he glanced towards the justificated chair. "'Australian,' he said. "'How do you know?' "'Can't mistake him. There's nothing else so lean and fine produced on the globe to-day. I was next door to them at Poziers and saw them fight. Lord, such men!' Now and then you had a freak, but most looked like Phoebus Apollo. Dixon gazed with a new respect at his neighbour, for he had not associated him with battlefields. During the war he had been a fervent patriot, but though he had never heard a shot himself, so many of his friends' sons and nephews, not to mention cousins of his own, had seen service, that he had come to regard the experience as commonplace. Lions in Africa and bandits in Mexico seemed to him novel and romantic things, but not trenches and airplanes which were the whole world's property. But he could scarcely fit his neighbour into even his haziest picture of war. The young man was tall and a little round-shouldered. He had short-sighted, rather prominent brown eyes, untidy black hair, and dark eyebrows which came near to meeting. He wore a knickerbocker suit of bluish-grey tweed, a pale blue shirt, a pale blue collar, and a dark blue tie, a symphony of colour which seemed too elaborately considered to be quite natural. Dixon had set him down as an artist or a newspaper correspondent, objects to him of lively interest. But now the classification must be reconsidered. "'So you were in the war,' he said encouragingly. Four blasted years,' was the savage reply, "'and I never wanted to hear the name of the beastly thing again.' "'You said he was an Australian,' said Dixon, casting back. "'But I thought Australians had a queer accent, like the English.' "'They have all kinds of accents, but you can never mistake their voice. It's got the sun in it. Canadians have got grinding ice in theirs, and Virginians have got butter. So have the Irish. 
In Britain there are no voices, only speaking tubes. It isn't safe to judge men by their accent only. You yourself I take to be Scotch, but for all I know you may be a senator from Chicago or a Boer general. I'm from Glasgow. My name's Dixon McCunn. He had a faint hope that the announcement might affect the other as it had affected the bagman at Kilchrist. "'Golly, what a name!' exclaimed the young man rudely. Dixon was nettled. "'It's very old Highland,' he said. "'It means the son of a dog.' "'Which? Christian name or surname?' And the young man appeared to think he had gone too far, for he smiled pleasantly. "'And a very good name, too. Mine is prosaic, by comparison. They call me John Heritage.' "'That,' said Dixon, mollified, "'is like a name out of a book. "'With that name by rights you should be a poet.' Gloom settled on the young man's countenance. "'It's a dash sight too poetic. "'It's like Edwin Arnold and Alfred Austin and dented Gabriel Rossetti. "'Great poets have vulgar monosyllables for names like Keats. "'The new Shakespeare, when he comes along, "'will probably be called Grub or Jubber, if he isn't Jones. "'With a name like yours I might have a chance.' You should be the poet. I'm very fond of reading, said Dixon modestly. A slow smile crumpled Mr. Heritage's face. There's a fire in the smoking-room, he observed as he rose. We'd better bag the armchairs before these fishing-louts take them. Dixon followed obediently. This was the kind of chance acquaintance for whom he had hoped, and he was prepared to make the most of him. The fire burned bright in the little dusky smoking-room, lighted by one oil-lamp. Mr. Heritage flung himself into a chair, stretched his long legs, and lit a pipe. "'You like reading?' he asked. "'What sort? Any use for poetry?' "'Plenty,' said Dixon. "'Have I been fond of learning it up and repeating it to myself when I have nothing to do? In church and waiting on trains, like. It used to be Tennyson, but now it's more Browning. I can say a lot of Browning.' The other screwed his face into an expression of disgust. "'I know the stuff. Damask cheeks and dewy sister eyelids. Or else the Erkley's vein. God's in his heaven, all's right with the world. No good, Mr. McCann, all back numbers. Poetry's not a thing of pretty round phrases or noisy invocations. It's life itself, with the tang of the raw world in it. Not a sweet meat for middle-aged women in parlours.' "'Are you a poet, Mr. Heritage?' "'No, Dogson, I'm a paper-maker.' This was a new view to Mr. McCunn. "'I just once knew a paper-maker,' he observed reflectively. "'They called him Tosh. He drank a bit.' "'Well, I don't drink,' said the other. "'I'm a paper-maker, but that's for my bread and butter. "'Some day, for my own sake, I may be a poet.' "'Have you published anything?' The eager admiration in Dixon's tone gratified Mr. Heritage. He drew from his pocket a slim book. "'My first fruits,' he said rather shyly. Dixon received it with reverence. It was a small volume in grey paper boards with a white label on the back, and it was lettered, "'Worlds, John Heritage's Book.' He turned the pages and read a little. "'It's a nice wee book,' he observed at length. "'Good God, if you call it nice, I must have failed pretty badly.' was the irritated answer. Dixon read more deeply, and was puzzled. It seemed worse than the worst of Browning to understand. He found one poem about a garden entitled Review. "'Crimson and resonant clangs the dawn,' said the poet. 
Then he went on to describe noonday. Sunflowers, tall grenadiers, ogle the roses, short-skirted ballet. The fumes of dark, sweet wine hidden in frail petals maddened the drunkard bees. This seemed to him an odd way to look at things, and he boggled over a phrase about an epicene lily. Then came evening. The painted gauze of the stars flutters in a fold of twilight crepe, sang Mr. Heritage, and again, the moon's pale leprosy sloughs the fields. Dixon turned to other verses which apparently enshrined the writer's memory of the trenches. They were largely compounded of oaths, and rather horrible, lingering lovingly over sights and smells which everyone is aware of, but most people contrive to forget. He did not like them. Finally, he skimmed a poem about a lady who turned into a bird. The evolution was described with intimate anatomical details, which scared the honest reader. He kept his eyes on the book, for he did not know what to say. The trick seemed to be to describe nature in metaphors, mostly drawn from music halls and haberdasher's shops, and when at a loss, to fall to cursing. He thought it, frankly, very bad and he laboured to find words which would combine politeness and honesty. "'Well,' said the poet, "'there's a lot of fine things here, but, but the lines don't just seem to scan very well.' Mr. Heritage laughed. "'Now I can place you exactly. You like the meek rhyme and the conventional epithet. Well, I don't. The world has passed beyond that prettiness.' You want the moon described as a huntress, or a gold disc, or a flower. I say it's often like a beer-barrel or a cheese. You want a wealth of jolly words and real things ruled out as unfit for poetry. I say there's nothing unfit for poetry, nothing, Dogson. Poetry's everywhere, and the real thing is commoner among drabs and pothouses and rubbish-heaps than in your Sunday parlours. The poet's business is to distill it out of rottenness, and show that it is all one spirit, the thing that keeps the stars in their place. I wanted to call my book Drains, for drains are sheer poetry, carrying off the excess and discards of human life to make the fields green and the corn ripen. But the publishers kicked, so I call it Whirls, to express my view of the exquisite involution of all things. Poetry is the fourth dimension of the soul. Well, let's hear about your taste in prose. Mr. McCung was much bewildered, and a little inclined to be cross. He disliked being called Dogson, which seemed to him an abuse of his etymological confidences. But his habit of politeness held. He explained rather haughtingly his preferences in prose. Mr. Heritage listened with wrinkled brows. "'You're even deeper in the mud than I thought,' he remarked. "'You live in a world of painted laths and shadows, all this passion for the picturesque. Trash, my dear man, like a schoolgirl's novelette heroes. You make up romances about gypsies and sailors and the blackguards they call pioneers, but you know nothing about them. If you did, you'd find they had none of the guilt and loss you imagine. But the great things they have got in common with all humanity you ignore. It's like—' It's like sentimentalising about a pancake because it looks like a buttercup, and all the while not knowing that it was good to eat. At that moment the Australian entered the room to get a light for his pipe. He wore a motorcyclist's overalls and appeared to be about to take the road. He bade them good night, and it seemed to Dixon that his face, 
seen in the glow of the fire, was drawn and anxious, unlike that of the agreeable companion at dinner. "'There,' said Mr. Heritage, nodding after the departing figure, "'I dare say you've been telling yourself stories about that chap, life in the bush, stock-riding, and the rest of it. But probably he's a blank clerk from Melbourne. Your romanticism is one vast self-delusion, and it blinds your eye to the real thing. We've got to clear it out, and with it all the damnable humbug of the Celt.' Mr. Mancun, who spelt the word with a soft C, was puzzled. "'I thought a Celt was a kind of a no-wheel fish,' he interposed. But the other, in the flood-tide of his argument, ignored the interruption. "'That's the value of the war,' he went on. "'It has burst up all the old conventions, and we've got to finish the destruction before we can build. It is the same with literature and religion and society and politics. At them with the axe, say I.' I have no use for priests and pedants. I have no use for upper classes and middle classes. There is only one class that matters, the plain man, the workers, who live close to life. The place for you, said Dixon dryly, is in Russia, among the Bolsheviks. Mr. Heritage approved. They are doing a great work in their own fashion. We needn't imitate all their methods. They are a trifle crude and have too many Jews among them. But they have got hold of the right end of the stick. They seek truth and reality. Mr. McCunn was slowly being roused. "'What brings you wandering here, anyways?' he asked. "'Exercise,' was the answer. "'I've been kept pretty closely tied up all winter, and I want leisure and quiet to think over things.' "'Well, there's one subject you might turn your attention to. You'll have been educated like a gentleman.' Nine wasted years. Five at Harrow, four at Cambridge.' See here, then. You're daft about the working class, and have no use for any other. But what in the name of goodness do you know about working men? I come out of them myself, and have lived next door to them all my days. Take them one way and another, they're a decent sort, good and bad, like the rest of us. But the wean daft folk that would set them up as models, close to truth and reality, says you. It's sheer ignorance, for you're about as well acquainted with the working man as with King Solomon. You say I make up fine stories about tinklers and sailormen because I know nothing about them. That's maybe true. But you're of the same job yourself. You idealise the working man, you and your kind, because you're ignorant. You say that he's seeking for truth, when he's only looking for a drink and a rise in wages. You tell me he's near reality. But I tell you that his notion of reality is often just a short working day and looking on at a football match on Saturday and when you run down what you call the middle classes that do three-quarters of the world's work and keep the machine going and the working man at a job, then I tell you, you're talking havers, havers. Mr. McGunn, having delivered his defence of the bourgeoisie, rose abruptly and went to bed. He felt jarred and irritated. His innocent little private domain had been badly trampled by this stray bull of a poet. But as he lay in bed, before blowing out his candle, he had recourse to Walton, and found a passage on which, as on a pillow, he went peacefully to sleep. As I left this place, and entered into the next field, a second pleasure entertained me. T'was a handsome milkmaid that had not yet attained so much age and wisdom as to load her mind with any fear of many things that will never be, as too many men too often do. 
but she cast away all care and sang like a nightingale. Her voice was good, and the ditty fitted for it. It was the smooth song that was made by Kit Marlowe now at least fifty years ago. And the milkmaid's mother sung an answer to it, which was made by Sir Walter Raleigh in his younger days. They were old-fashioned poetry, but choicely good. I think much better than the strong lines that are now in fashion in this critical age. End of chapter 2